I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Carrie Johnson. Your co-hosts for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by Vice President and Group Director Laura Ketzel to explore what European leaders can expect in 2021. Welcome, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. So we have a number of predictions for European leaders, but we're going to focus on just a, a subset. There's a sort of a theme, right, of the movement of data and people is really at the center of what we're going to talk about today. So, Laura, maybe we can kick off the conversation with e-privacy and what is going to be happening with that regulation in 2021. Sure. Well, the e-privacy regulation, if you'll forgive the analogy, has been a little bit like waiting for Godot because we've been supposed to be implementing it here in Europe for a couple of years. I honestly can't remember when the first implementation date was, but the commission has decided actually to shelve it for the moment. And even though they've not said this explicitly, we think they're going to be shelving it permanently and instead concentrate on doing a better job of regulating AI and sort of enforcing rules about the ethical use of AI, which European consumers and I think consumers all over the world are concerned about rightly. And so I think the commission's making the right decision by focusing on that. Why are consumers in Europe so tuned in to the ethics of AI? Have there been challenges? Have there been incidents? Have there been high profile exposures? It seems a, a very nuanced discussion versus something like privacy, which someone might experience so much more directly via fraud or identity theft. So I think it's a combination of things. I think the there have been some high profile incidents that aren't truly AI, but as you know, differentiating in the minds of general consumers and indeed in the minds of many of us, right, between what's real AI and what's just, you know, using algorithms to do things and so on is very difficult. And one of the best examples is actually the, in the UK, which of course will be finally finishing its transition period and leaving the EU at the end of this year, but nonetheless, all of Europe saw this with its um, end of high school exams this past uh, this past year. So because they couldn't run the usual very high stakes exams because of the pandemic, the UK decided to take everybody's grades and then put them through a complex algorithmic manipulation process and spit out what they thought should be the students' grades if they had taken the exam. And the algorithm turned out to do a stunningly poor job in terms of being equitable towards people from kind of more disadvantaged backgrounds, kids at fancy private schools did better, you know, like all the things you would not want out of an algorithmic grade estimation process if you're interested in an equitable society. So there were in, that was the highest profile one, but there were some others. And also, you've had a bunch of European companies themselves coming out with some frameworks for the ethical use of AI, like Rolls-Royce is one, for example, over the past year. So I think those things combined have really raised the kind of specter of what if this isn't applied in a human and equitable way for European citizens. And then the other piece of it is that the way that the 
the uh, GDPR has written talks about what they call automated decision-making, which is computers making decisions that affect your life as a human being. So that's what AI does too. So European consumers and residents have had a lot of time to sort of think about, oh, I understand that there are, there are pieces of software making decisions about whether I get a mortgage or get a job or whatever, and they know they have the right to appeal those decisions. So I think a lot of things have come together to make that important both in the minds of kind of European residents and citizens in general, and also in the minds of the various European rulemaking and legislative bodies. So is that legislation underway or we're just predicting that by the end of 2021, there'll be legislation around the ethical use of AI? There's a bunch of kind of consultation uh, underway already. And so we expect that there'll be a kind of finalized draft of the legislation by the end of 2021. And is it safe to assume that we expect more and more firms like Rolls-Royce setting up their own sort of frameworks and things? Are they unique today in having those frameworks? I'd think there'll be more. So I didn't mention this before, but Bosch has also rolled one out already. And so another kind of major European industrial player. So I would think there'd be more and that all of those big industrial players will participate in the process of kind of dra drafting this legislation in one way or another by providing input. Certainly, I think they've received over a thousand comments on the like current whatever stage draft, European legislation drafting is a kind of complicated process and goes through many stages on which there are various forms of public comment. So there are there's plenty of indication that there's a lot of interest in this. And I would imagine that Europe will follow its kind of usual consultative, you know, we want to draw together players in the space into various uh, consortia that consult on these things and then that, you know, produce frameworks that people can use that implement whatever the legislation or regulation turns out to be. As I'm looking at the predictions and I think about the pandemic overall and the idea of the European Union, has the country by country handling of the pandemic and just vast differences in infection rates changed the psyche around the European Union at all in terms of any kind of actual union? Um, <laughs> meaning, what is the impact then of the pandemic overall on the sort of state of the European Union when it comes to a either nationalist perspective or not? I'm, I'm very curious, and maybe it's not related to the conversation, but I would imagine how consumers and people currently feel about their country versus the European Union versus the state of the world was, has changed dramatically in the course of a year or not? Um, yes, and because, of course, you had sort of Brexit predating the pandemic that right. also was having a lot of influence on people, how people felt about the EU. So with the usual caveats that I am not a political scientist, and so this is going to be one person who lives in Europe who pays attention's opinion and kind of having talked with a lot of my Forrester colleagues and clients about this. And I think, yes, there, I mean, you're quite right that there have been very different outcomes in different member states of the European Union in terms of pandemic handling and infection rates and so on. And you can see that in any numbers you look at. And the, that, that has highlighted like the sort of 
every country for itself aspect of this. Now, I will say that health was never one of the domains in which EU institutions were supposed to be in charge. The kind of EU institutions are st in that in that area are strictly kind of coordinating rather than controlling because each member state is responsible for health. Now, the I think that whether you will see more demand for, you know, we should centralize this more and do more of this at the European level, you've certainly seen some kind of ra raisings of those flags. You also see, particularly from the member states that handled it better, saying like, look, guys, like, we're doing our job over here. Like, leave us alone. Like, we don't want to, or we we don't need we don't need your dysfunction introduced into our decent handling of this. So, where that kind of push pull ends up is anybody's guess. But you you did see a bunch of things like coordinating the Europe wide purchase of PPE. Uh, you know, after uh, after sort of a, a bit of the, the early stages of the pandemic, once everybody sort of realized that that was probably a good idea, and I think broadly. The experience of, you know, watching Brexit over like four years, mind you, because the referendum was in June of 2016, has been an interesting, hey, maybe this European Union thing we complain about isn't so bad experience for a lot of folks in a lot of the other member states. There have also been some who said like, well, if the UK can do it, so can we. But then they watch the actual practical. And we haven't seen the rubber meet the road practical stuff yet, right? Because the transition ends on the 31st of December of this year. So, you know, public service announcement, if you haven't done all your preparations, please go do it now. Uh, and we have got various forest docu forester documents that can help you. So I think how, however that goes is also going to influence how people feel about the EU and what they wanted to do and not do. And it's been really interesting to watch the kind of one of the persistent issues you have with the European Union as a whole is what lots of people like to call the democratic deficit, as in people never felt like a lot of European citizens don't vote in their European parliamentary elections at super high rates. They're much more likely to vote in their kind of national elections. And because they, the sort of whole European parliament thing, things feels really abstract. But after a global pandemic that you saw different levels of handling of across Europe and a sort of Europe-wide coordination issue like the exit of a major member state that is kind of coming to a close now in terms of the actual exit itself have really forced people to think about this institution that they're this institution and this like broader framework that they're a part of and what it means and what they want it to mean and so on and opinions in a lot of places of the EU have actually never been better last time I checked weirdly or maybe not so weirdly given these experiences so it'll I think it'll be very interesting to see kind of how that plays out in 2021, because you've got all the argument over the big multi, the sort of pandemic response budget, where you've got some member states wanting to vote against it because they don't want some of the, the, the sort of the conditions that are attached to it and whatever. And so there's been a lot of tough negotiating. And so we'll have to see how that works out. But it's a, it's been a good exercise in making European citizens actually reckon with what the European project means. So, Laura, I do think that's a good segue to the next topic that we're going to tackle in terms of what's going to happen related to the the UK and, you know, as we're staring down the barrel of uh, December 31st here, um, and that how will firms have to treat the UK um, in terms of data protection in 2021 and, and moving forward? So... In 2021, and indeed, uh, 
we think after that as well. The UK will not be what is usually called GDPR adequate. So the this is a little Pardon me unpacking this technicality here, just so everyone gets what's going on. But you might say, wait a minute, but the UK has been part of the European Union since the beginning. And so it has the same laws as the rest of the EU. And that's all true. And so what the UK did was as part of its kind of post-Brexit referendum legislation where they took a bunch of European law and put it into domestic law because they would obviously no longer have reference to the body of European law, they took the GDPR and put it into domestic law. And so at the moment, as we speak, and indeed, as of the end of December, the UK will have exactly the same set of laws as the rest, as the, as the rest of the EU. And so you might say, well, okay, then what's the problem? Well, the problem is that the EU has to explicitly say, yes, we believe that your laws are the same as ours. And the commission for, you know, depending on who you want to listen to, either political or real reasons is saying, no, we're not going to do that until after you guys have left. We're not deciding whether you're adequate or not. So as of January, as of, you know, midnight European time on the 31st of December, to be perfectly technical about this, the UK will no longer be GDPR adequate. And so what that means is that if you have European uh, resident data that you are currently just transferring to the UK and working with there, you know, just like without any controls, you need to stop that now. And you need to start treating the UK like a third country. And so all your data transfer, and what that means is all your data transfers to the UK of European resident data have to be treated just like as though the UK were the US or any other non-GDPR adequate country. So what that means is you'll either need to use the same kind of technical uh, technical controls where you have standard uh, contract clauses and you encrypt things and so on to deal with the data that you're transferring to the UK that's European resident data or you can stop transferring. But like those are your, those are your choices. And so anybody who hasn't thought about that already, please 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 go think about it now because you will have problems with the European data protection regulators in the future if you do this without, you know, without actually doing anything about it. And I suspect that there are probably companies out there who have a bunch of transfers that they haven't thought about because the UK has been part of the EU forever. And so please go look for those if you have not already and just make sure you deal with them prior to the end of this month so that you do not end up with an almighty scramble uh, when some regulator asks you about it. Is that enough time? Um, ideally, no, <laughs> but it is the amount of time you have. So time to get cracking. Uh, no, but it's seriously, like there are enough kind of, if you're, if you're transferring data outside the EU at all, you hopefully are using, uh, you know, you are using proper controls to do it because, and you probably had to think about it when the European Court of Justice invalidated Privacy Shield a little while ago. And if you didn't, please go fix it now, as I said before, because you can't transfer uh, stuff to the US under Privacy Shield anymore because it no longer exists. So use whatever stuff you're using to transfer data outside the EU and apply it to whatever you're currently transferring to the UK that is protected data. Because, uh, you know, I'd imagine there won't be a bunch of regulatory actions launched on like January 2nd, but nonetheless, uh, it would be really good to be in reasonable compliance and if not looking like you're getting there uh, by the end of the transition period because this is not a new thing. And so uh, ever, so the, the regulators will say, look, you had plenty of time to figure this out. So come on, 
none of this like, oh, but I didn't know what I was doing. You had loads and loads of time. So they're not going to be terribly sympathetic to, uh, to wait, but I didn't do it yet, would be my guess. Laura, obviously most of Europe is still remote. What are you seeing for 2021? So Europe, like everywhere else, and well, I'm a good case here, went remote, you know, in something like February or March, depending on where, and have mostly been remote since then, other than essential workers and uh, the the folks who and the folks who can't do their jobs uh, remotely. And in obviously regulation varies by country, et cetera, et cetera. But broadly, there's a heck of a lot of European white collar workers who are working from home and have been for most of the year. And so that has been a real big change for Europe because a lot of places in Europe have been fairly kind of be in an office to do your work oriented. Uh, our friends in Germany refer to this as Präsenzkultur, which I guess sounds uh, more highfalutin than the, than the English version. And But because we had no choice and business has continued and largely been pretty successful, it's opened up a lot of companies' eyes to, hey, this is possible to do and it has real benefits. Uh, and so you'll see, continue to see something like, we think, one third of European white collar workers staying remote full time in 2021. Because what you've got now is a bunch of people who return to their home countries from the places where they were working. Because of course, all over Europe, you can basically work and live wherever you want. Uh, you know, I can, you can move from, you can move from Toulouse to Munich the next day and go work at your job without getting a visa or doing anything uh, other than showing up. And so there's lots of Europeans who are working remotely from other countries that is going to potentially have tax implications for some of them. And so employers have to deal with that if it's going to be a long-term thing. Uh, but there's been a grace period for the, this extraordinary situation that we're still kind of living through. So, but that won't continue indefinitely. And it certainly it probably won't continue for all of 2021, I would imagine. So there'll be people figuring out how to continue to stay in and pay tax in and all of those things. And so for employers who don't have formal tax entities in the countries where their employees have gone back to or are now working, they're going to have to set up relationships for that. Fortunately, there are a whole bunch of suppliers of you know various blends of software and services who make this a lot easier these days so that you don't have to, as a medium-sized company, go figure out how to like be a tax-paying employer in you know other European country X where you don't currently operate and so on. So there's a bunch of, you know, ins there's insurance and there's kind of employee, you know, sort of employee in employee in a box kinds of situations that folks can subscribe to that purport to take care of most of this. And I would imagine there'll be a bunch more innovation in that space f to support all of this working over the course of the next couple of years, because it's something that European governments have actually shown a fair about amount of willingness to encourage because over the longer run, and this is obviously not for 2021, but for the like broader future policy wise, what one of the policymakers goals is to spread economic activity out from like the big, you know, congested urban centers where it's mostly concentrated you know, places like London and Paris and Amsterdam where I am, you know, and, 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 and to kind of let people live in rural places and telecommute and, you know, pay taxes and support the local economy and all of this. So the, there's a fair amount of support from the policymakers for making all of this work, provided that it's not done to kind of, 
do labor cost arbitrage, right? Like no points for no points for sending people to places and then making them work for cheap or getting rid of your European employees and then replacing them with much cheaper people that you use, that you can work with through these kinds of services. So you'll see kind of labor regulation enforcement, I would think. But in one of the present, one of the most present culture uh, sort of oriented places, Germ being Germany, whose word that is, uh, with apologies for my bad German pronunciation, um, the government has said like, okay, we're going to have actual rules about this so that employers have to provide flexible working options as opposed to shoving people back into the offices because the government quite likes the fact that we don't have quite so many people concentrated in offices to continue to control infection spread. Uh, and so they're willing to consider that kind of encouragement to the private sector that previously you wouldn't have seen necessarily. There's lots of directives about like how many hours people can work and what you can ask them to do and not do, but encouraging flexible working for some European governments is rather a first. And so I think you'll, you'll see more of that and that's going to enable this kind of set of white collar employees who would really rather work mostly remotely for a whole variety of reasons that will certainly have a lot to do with the pandemic and wanting to be closer to family and outside of, of major cities and so on at the moment, but may well continue into the future. Government sponsored and encouraged remote work is an intriguing idea. And I'm not sure, I'm sure you have thoughts on who that benefits the most, or if it matters that maybe they, the benefits cancel out. Meaning, Employees obviously benefit. We talked. You talked about more equitable, equitable moving away from cities. It also seems to encourage then um, easy switching costs for employees, of course, right? To take other jobs with other companies if they're not beholden to a location, which may be perfectly fair. I'm curious how um, our customers, meaning our clients, think about this um, from an employer perspective. Is it a net positive? I think the kind of positive, the sort of employee friendly bits of it. So like, to, to be, to be sort of full disclosure, this is not like the government is going to subsidize flexible working. They're just saying, Hey, we, that said, employers across Europe have actually been providing employees with, you know, subsidies for, you know, personal technology and, you know, chairs and stuff like that to enable flexible working it for the last however long, you know, sometimes to the tune of substantial sums. Like in Germany, for example, I think it's over 700 euros on average that in our kind of survey data, employees that got subsidies from their employers received. So, I mean, there's a plenty of subsidy for employees who would otherwise be out of work because they can't work at their in-person job, like in many, many, in many, many kind of uh, sort of rich countries that you see all over the world, not just here in Europe. But the, I think to go back to your, the sort of crux of your question, that I think the benefits of kind of government encouraged, shall we say, flexible working are, you've, you've articulated the employee-friendly ones. There are also some employer-friendly ones in the sense of now, like I could always draw talent from all over Europe to my locations uh, because people can work people can work without restriction uh, throughout the EU, throughout the EU mostly. And but now I can access talent that may not want to leave the place where it is, which before I might not have been able to, or I might have felt like, oh, I can't do this. And but now that there are kind of structures to enable that, I can 
hire a really talented person in Slovenia where I do not have a tax entity to like pick a small European country where you might not have a tax entity. Whereas before I might not have been able to do that. And also my other staff will be much more accepting of that. Whereas prior they might've been like, I don't understand why we're hiring this remote person in this random place because everybody else has to show up at the office in Frankfurt or, you know, or in Paris or wherever it is. So I think those are benefits. Like European employers already get the benefit of being able to hire talent from a whole range of places very easily, but now they don't have to make the talent move which might be a real benefit. Now, there are arguments to be made that these benefits will accrue primarily to people at the very top of their professions, the most skilled, and thus the most able to command a sort of good salary and the position that they want in whatever place that they are. And I think that's a very real concern. But there's plenty of kind of policymaking apparatus for European policymakers to sort of figure out how they want to how they want to try and influence the use of these kinds of regimes to make sure that it doesn't result in a bunch of labor cost arbitrage or in sort of all the benefits accruing to a tiny segment of the elite. So, Laura, obviously we covered a broad waterfront here, but all kind of tied to data and the movement of data and people. So, you know, in closing, what are like one to two key takeaways, key reminders, maybe for European leaders as they're, um, you know, as 2021 is quickly approaching. So I'll go back to my sort of annoying public service announcement, which is if you have not thoroughly investigated your EU to UK data flows, please go do that now uh, so that you don't end up in an unfortunate situation with a regulator. And sort of more broadly than that, I think and you've seen this in not just our kind of predictions corpus that, that that we're talking about today, but in all of our work around the pandemic, that here in Europe, just like everywhere, the sort of being forced to do things has kind of opened the aperture of the possible in a way that people might have thought was just super unlikely before, you know, we did things like send the entire public sector workforce in Italy to work from home, which had never been done before, but they had no choice. So there's a lot that's possible now that would have felt prohibitively difficult. And I think if our clients and companies carry that spirit into 2021, as we hopefully, you know, vaccinate people and come out of this sort of pandemic situation and and not just go back to the normal that we had before, but rather think critically about what's possible now, not just with remote working, but with new ways of working, new ways of using your physical space to collaborate and to enable the kinds of things that you want to enable and the sort of business models that you stood up that were like, oh, we have to do something about this really weird problem we have because of the pandemic may well have legs beyond the current situation. So approaching 2021 uh, with the spirit of what is possible that we might not have thought was possible before, I think would benefit everybody because we've all, I hopefully everybody has internalized the like never waste a good crisis part of this uh, to do a bunch of stuff that needed to be done that maybe there wasn't the will to do before. Um, And if not do that, (laughs) but the, but to kind of approach things with a What's possible now? What can we do? What, you know, what thing would we have dismissed because it seemed so ridiculous and far from our practices before that is worth taking another look at, given the experience that we've just had? Great, great guidance. Thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. 
If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.